0: This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. This episode contains reference of child abuse and the sexual exploitation of minor girls. Please consider this before listening. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors, such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors, or authors, are of their opinion, and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. your friend Vernon from Waco, Texas, and I'm going to be your orator in regards to sharing with you some things that we feel, as a body of Christ, we feel very, very important. And I want to remind you, brother, that the things that I'm going to show you are strictly biblical, and we're going to lay some points together from the scriptures which are so dynamic and so unreal that hopefully it'll do for you what it's done for me and for many other people in my own age category. This is Decoding Cults, and I am your host Paulsy. You are listening to The Branch Davidians, Part 4. In this episode, we will unpack the daily life of Vernon Howell's followers now that they had regained ownership of the compound, and how Vernon's teachings became more and more cult-like. 1988 was a very busy year for the group and for Vernon. They had gained control of and moved back to the Mount Carmel compound from Palestine. The previous occupants hadn't maintained anything and the compound was in bad shape. The group immediately set about fixing up the buildings and repairing any damaged equipment. They did, however, need funds to achieve their dreams. Some of the initial funds came from donations made by more affluent followers. The Bunds family gave money towards the purchase of a van and a place of residence in Pomona, California. If you recall from our last episode, these were the parents of Robin Buns, one of Vernon's spiritual wives. There was also reference to an elderly couple donating between $250,000 and $500,000 to the group at this time. In today's terms, $500,000 would be around $1.1 million, which is roughly 16.5 million rand they also stopped referring to the group as the Branch Davidians and instead called themselves the Students of the Seven Seals. I think that Vernon was aware that he could not purely live off donations and that money was bound to dry up. He then set about opening some businesses to generate income into the group. As Vernon was quite a skilled mechanic, they opened a car repair and renovation shop. This business would go on to rebuild and restore high-performance cars that they would then sell in California. They also had a landscaping business. Some of the members would have jobs in town. For example, David Jones, Perry's son and Rachel's brother, was a postman in Waco. Those who did not have traditional jobs would work on the compound, fixing and building and the like. The setup was quite patriarchal in the sense that the men had to do the jobs or the hard labour and the women would tend to the children, clean and perform other female tasks. At the compound, married couples with their families would live together in a cottage. Singles would live in female-only or male-only quarters. Vernon still had a great love for music. Along with Steve Schneider... They started a business called Messiah Cyrus Productions, which was like a record company. They even purchased a tour bus for Vernon so that he could use it to go between Texas and California. They would go on to use this company not only to produce and record songs by Vernon, but also as a tool to bring more members into the fold. Having been a gun enthusiast from a young age, Vernon also started a company called Magbag which was headed up by his devout follower Paul Fatter. Through this company, they would order guns and then buy and sell guns and accessories at gun shows. In a later statement before Congress, one man would claim that buying and selling guns was quite a lucrative business and people who do do this usually have a stockpile or stockholding of various weapons. Vernon then wanted to grow his followers. He set out to England, Australia, California and even Hawaii to increase his flock. Let's start in England. Vernon and Steve went to England on a recruitment drive. Vernon knew that his best audience would be those who were connected to the SDA church, as it is where most of his fundamental teachings came from. Steve would go first to spread the word that a prophet of God was going to come and teach people the real truth. Vernon gave a few talks at Newbold, which was an SDA college in Berkshire. During these talks, many of the attendees were not at all convinced by his message. But he had convinced a few of his students of his teachings, that he was in fact the last Messiah, that the end of days was imminent, and that Jesus would be coming soon. People were drawn to his message. Some even went as far as saying that they had learned more from Vernon in one class about the Bible than they had in all their years before. Let's take a step back. I was wondering exactly how these students, who were in every sense of the word well-educated, would believe what Vernon was saying. So, I went back to why people join these groups. In my opinion, it could be one of two things that may have led to this. Firstly, I looked at why people join cults, and if you recall all the way back to my introduction, when people, in this case students, move to a new area, they may look for groups who have the same beliefs as they do, and sometimes they end up in groups that have less than good intentions. Secondly, I thought back to the conversation that I had with a cult expert. I thought that they might be searching for a simple answer to a complex question, And in this case, Vernon may have had that answer which they were seeking. Once they had a few believers, they would use them to recruit more followers. They would tell people just enough to get them intrigued and then convince them to come back to one of the talks. One of the students told his girlfriend Diana Henry about the group. She had moved from Manchester to London to study and went along to one of Vernon's talks. She was immediately intrigued and would even secretly go and visit Waco. She would eventually convince her mother and her four siblings to move to Waco with her in the future. Livingston Fagan, a bright articulate young man with a promising future, had just finished a master's degree but was wondering if there was more to life. Then He met Vernon at Newbold and was intrigued by Vernon, mostly his ideas and his message. He agreed with much of what Vernon was saying and began to follow him. He, his wife and even his mother would end up going to Waco. There were a few more UK citizens that would join the group, including an architect. Vernon also spent some time in Australia recruiting. Here, with the permission of Bruce and Lisa Ghent, he took their 19-year-old Nicole Ghent as a spiritual wife. In the book, Waco, A Survivor's Story, the author describes how David wanted to run away with Nicole and just leave everything behind, but he could not as he had a mission from God. It is my opinion that he probably really fell for her and was on the verge of just leading a normal life with the school, but... Again, just my opinion, he could not give up the power that he had over so many people just for one girl. By the end of his recruitment drive, he would have followers from not only the UK and Australia, but also New Zealand, Israel, Mexico, and Canada. His followers would also be very racially diverse. One of the Australian converts that came to the compound was a young lady named Elizabeth Baranyai. She became very close with Mark Bro, and they fell in love. Her visa was about to expire, so she had to return to Australia for a time, but not before promising to return as soon as she could. In early 1989, Elizabeth returned to the US. After finally getting permission from Vernon, she and Mark were married around May that same year. From what I could tell, I think that Vernon was not very happy with this union and may even have given his approval grudgingly. In my opinion, he may even have been a bit jealous that he did not have Mark's full devotion anymore. Mark and Elizabeth spent their wedding night on a blanket in a shed at the Mount Carmel compound. Shortly after their wedding, Vernon sent Elizabeth back to Australia, supposedly to run things from there. The thing is, by his own account, Mark was becoming disillusioned by his best friend. He was finding it harder and harder to believe in him and his message. He even secretly applied for an immigration visa to Australia in the same month that he had gotten married. By this time, Vernon's sermons began to change even more. When he had initially started preaching, the message was more loving and portrayed the end of times as a beautiful thing. Now, however, he started to have a more doomsday, fire and brimstone approach. He kept reiterating that the end was very near and that they had to be ready all the time. The followers started to see signs of the end of times looming closer everywhere and they were convinced that the breaking of the seals was imminent. He further proclaimed that unlike Jesus, he was a sinful Messiah, even quoting from Psalm 40 verse 12, which states, quote, I am surrounded by many troubles, too many to count my sins have caught up with me, and I can no longer see they are more than the hairs on my head, and I have lost my courage. End quote. He claimed that unlike Jesus, who was free of sin, he Vernon was full of sin and was thus better placed to recognize it, understand it, and help others avoid it. He would also challenge his followers' commitment to his teachings by asking them if they were prepared to walk through a hail of bullets for the cause. Vernon told the followers that he was building an army, one to fight the final earthly battle between good and evil, and all of them were his soldiers. He had also gathered a group of men around him, kind of like an inner circle of bodyguards, who he called his Mighty Men. King David in the Bible also had mighty men. So, in my opinion, I think he was trying to look even more like a prophet. I also think he was grooming his followers to think of him more as King David than just plain old Vernon the prophet. The reason for this will become clear a little bit later in the episode. One of his mighty men was David Jones, Rachel's brother. It was reported that he would be a postman by day and then act as Vernon's personal bodyguard at night. He would even sleep next to Vernon's bed with a gun, just to protect him. A few more of these mighty men were Mark Bro, Perry Jones, Clive Doyle, Steve Schneider and Douglas Wayne Martin. They were all Vernon's most trusted companions. When he wasn't recruiting overseas, Vernon would split his time between the compound and the house in Pomona, California. On Saturday the 5th of August 1989, Vernon would make a claim that would test his followers' beliefs to the core. That afternoon, while he was leading one of his Bible studies regarding the sin of lust and desire, Vernon just stopped in the middle of a sentence. Some followers who were there said that he cocked his head to the side and looked like he was listening to something. Others would go a step further and say that it looked very much planned and not like a spontaneous message. After a, I dare say, dramatic pause, Vernon declared that he had received a message from God about the new light. He said that God had showed him that he was the Lamb mentioned in the book of Revelations who was to open the seven seals and lead his followers to salvation. If this sounds familiar to you, that's because it is. He had claimed this before. But this was not all. When he carried on with the message, many would be very taken aback. The next part of his message was that all marriages were annulled. In an interview with IM Tribune, Mark Bro, who was present at the time, explained, quote, All women in the cult, in fact all women, belong to the Lamb. Vernon said. He was their perfect mate. The men's perfect mate was already a part of them. David recounted the story of Adam and Eve and how Eve came from Adam's rib. The men, if they henceforth remained celibate, would get their perfect mate in heaven in the same manner as Adam, but the married men must give up all their earthly wives to Vernon. End quote. He went on to claim that marriage was really just glorified adultery. Let's talk a bit about the proclamation. Vernon tried to justify it by saying that sexual desire was a sin and that it was up to him to bear that burden for all men. Almost like he was reluctant to do it but had to for the sake of his followers. It is my opinion that Vernon wanted to test the loyalty of his followers. To eat out those that would do anything for him and for his message, this was a huge ask. Some of his followers, like Steve and Judy Schneider, had been together for over twenty years. At that point, in my mind, this showed just how narcissistic he really was. Some of his most devout followers questioned this proclamation, but Vernon merely said to them, "My lot is to procreate." And your lot is to tolerate. Vernon had also proclaimed that he was tasked by God to father 24 children, and that these children were the 24 elders that were written about in Revelations, and that they would rule by his side in the celestial kingdom. In essence, he said that he was creating the house of David he also said that he was entitled to at least 144 wives. The proclamation that evening would then become known as the New Light Vision and Vernon would even create tapes with this message for distribution. This proclamation caused many to question their loyalty, including Mark, who, by his own account, was like a brother to Vernon and who, at that point, had only been married to Elizabeth for about three months. Mark had already grown uncomfortable when he kept seeing young girls, who were not one of Vernon's wives, go and spend time alone with him in his bedrooms or sometimes even in motel rooms when they were on the road. This last proclamation was the final nail in the coffin. After the Bible study session, Mark stated that Vernon had left the room with him and asked, so, Mark, how does it feel now that I am stuck with Elizabeth?" End quote. This did not amuse Mark, and eventually, under the cover of having to return to Waco from California, he would leave the group and join his wife in Australia, where they would both cut ties with the group. This apparently hurt Vernon very deeply. He would go on to tell his followers that he had actually kicked Mark out of the group for immoral behaviour. One of the first new spiritual wives that Vernon would take on was Judy Schneider. Steve would later reveal to a fellow follower that it was unimaginably hard for him, but in the same breath, he could not deny his wife the opportunity to fulfil a prophecy from God. The thing is... Word around the compound was that it just so happened that the wives that were chosen for Vernon also happened to be the most beautiful woman of the group. When the conversation had come up with Vernon, he didn't deny it. He merely asked them if they believed that God wanted him to have beautiful children, which they couldn't exactly argue. In early 1990, while in Pomona, Vernon legally changed his name to David Koresh. On the legal documents, he stated that it was for publicity and business purposes. But to his followers, he had the following explanation. He said that he chose the name David after the biblical King David, who was said to be the royal lineage that would bring forth Jesus. Thus, claiming that he too was from this royal lineage, and further cementing his claims that he was a messiah. He then stated that Koresh was the Hebrew literation of Cyrus, and as we know, he claimed that in one of his earlier visions, he was the temporary Cyrus on earth, who was meant to free his people. From this point forward, I will refer to Vernon as David Koresh. I just want to jump back a little bit and talk about life on the compound for the followers. David had amassed many followers. At its peak, towards the end, there were over 130 people living at the compound. But I was wondering, with him travelling so much, how he kept them faithful to him and his teachings. Firstly, after his new light vision, all of the men and women were separated. And lived in single-sex quarters. The children lived with the women. Men and women were only allowed to interact at meal times and during Bible study, but this needed to be at an absolute minimum. Life on the compound was pretty rough. David called it the quote, "withering experience," and told his followers that they didn't need any luxuries. They only needed to study the Word of God and to get ready for the end of times. He also used it to ensure that those who came there and chose to stay would remain faithful to him. Most of the houses didn't have any running water and very few had working kitchens. They also didn't really have much electricity either. In the summer, they would be bitten by fire ants during the day and mosquitoes at night. In the winter, they would huddle around small heaters for warmth. Every morning at 5.30am, the men would wake up and run an obstacle course around the compound that David had created. On the mornings where he was at the compound, he would join them for this run. While the men were out, the women would get up and prepare breakfast for the men. Breakfast usually consisted of oatmeal or millet with some fruit. There were even rules around the fruit. For example, You could have apples and bananas together, but not oranges and bananas. There's no further explanation on why he had done this. Once the men were back from their morning exercise, they would have breakfast, David with them, and the women would then go out and do their exercises. After breakfast, David would usually go back to bed. The group would have a short Bible study session, and then the men would get ready to go to work. Some of them went off to their jobs in Waco, others to the businesses for the compound, and the rest would be working on the compound, repairing and building. The women would tend to the children, some hosting their homeschooling in the cafeteria, which included three Bible study sessions. Other women would tend to the property, cleaning and helping with menial tasks around the compound. Some would sell items which they would give to the men to sell at gun shows, and others would cook. Lunch at the compound was a frugal affair, which most often consisted of vegetable soup and salad. Perry Jones was in charge of producing food, and for the most part, he would get bargains from grocery shops by getting food that was close to expiring. Sometimes he would even score by getting a big discount on day-old pizza. After lunch, everyone would go back to their tasks. David would wake up again around 2pm, have a plate of food and then either help around the compound or spend time in the chapel jamming with the band. Dinner was mostly comprised of popcorn and whatever was left over from that day's lunch. They would then all gather in the chapel where David would preach to them feverishly, sometimes for many hours. There were even times where he would preach for so long that he would fall asleep in the middle of his sermon and the followers wouldn't move, sometimes for up to an hour. Then, he would wake up and immediately carry on with his train of thought. At times the sermons would carry on until the early hours of the morning, but they were never allowed to sleep in. There were also guards placed at all of the entrances of the property and at the meeting hall, and followers needed to get permission from David to be able to leave the property at all. Saturdays were the Sabbath. No work was to be done on these days. The followers would get dressed in their best outfits. The women would even put bows in their hair and they would attend services. On these days, they were allowed to watch a little bit of TV. Most times, David would let them watch a movie of his choosing, mainly war movies like Apocalypse Now and Platoon, and they even got to eat junk food and ice cream. Besides the strange fruit combinations that followers could or could not eat, there were also other dietary restrictions. Followers were not allowed any alcohol and drugs were strictly forbidden. They were also not to eat meat and dairy products, especially milk, which was a big no-no. His reasoning for this was that milk was for children and, as they were adults, they should not drink it. One member was punished because she had told a newcomer that it was okay to eat cheese. They were also not allowed any processed flour or sugar. The only time that they could have sugar or anything processed was when he allowed it, like some Sabbaths where he would let them have ice cream. They all mostly followed a mainly vegetarian diet. The dress code was also strictly controlled. Women were not allowed to wear any makeup or jewellery. They could grow their hair, but they could not dye it. They were allowed to wear skirts and pants. When they did wear pants, their shirts had to be long enough to hang over their bums. He also preferred that they remained rather skinny. The men had some rules around the way they dressed too. In cases where they were wearing shorts, they needed to ensure that the shorts covered their knees so as not to attract the attention of the woman. The men also needed to keep their hair on the short side and keep it tidy. This to me was rich coming from a guy whose hair was at least shoulder length. Just a heads up, the next small section includes descriptions of corporal punishment bordering on abuse. If this may be triggering, you can skip forward a minute or two. Life for the children wasn't all sunshine and roses either. David preferred the old ways, where the children should be seen and not heard. Besides being homeschooled, they were also subject to readiness drills. In an interview with ABC, Kiri Jewell, who was a small child when her mother joined, stated quote, He always said that they would come for us, and that we were going to defend ourselves and that we were all going to die, end quote. Children learned to obey their parents and elders from a very early age. If they did anything wrong, they would get a hiding with a paddle. One mother tearfully described that she would sometimes even draw blood. Children who misbehaved would be given to David and he would discipline them, at times beating them pretty severely. His justification for this was Proverbs 13 verse 24 where the saying, spare the rod, spoil the child, comes from. One ex-member recalls how as a child she lived in constant fear, feeling as if she could never do anything right. Another ex-follower described that as a child, when she attended sermons, the children were not allowed to use the bathroom, and some would wet themselves during the long services. There were other reports that when children misbehaved, they would be locked up inside a house for days on end. David was all about consequences for breaking his rules and would at times even take the paddle to adult followers who broke his rules. One couldn't at any point question him and followers were discouraged from coming to David with their problems as they were told that he had enough of his own and that dealing with issues by themselves was part of the withering experience. Another one of the big rules was that followers needed to separate themselves from the world. They were taught that the world was the sin, the flesh and desires, and they were supposed to be spiritual. With all of this in mind, let's look at Steve Hassan's bike model of authoritarian control and see just how David maintained complete control over his group. Firstly, there is behaviour control. David's followers fall under many of the 25 points. These include the dress code, and dietary regulation, deprivation of sleep, when and how and with who a member has sex, and punishment of disobedience. Secondly, there is information control. Again, the followers are subject to quite a few points under this section. Some examples are where the leader distorts information to make it more acceptable. In the case of this group, David would often misquote the Bible passages to back his claims. Limiting outside information, like in this case, television, keeping members so busy that they don't have the time to think and investigate, and also compartmentalizing information into outsider versus insider doctrines. Thirdly, thought control. He required members to internalize his doctrine as truth. He would encourage only good and proper thoughts. He used thought-stopping techniques by insisting that the followers listen to his teaching for hours on end, thus not allowing them time to form their own opinions. And he forbade anyone from questioning him or his teachings. Lastly, emotional control. By instilling fear and promoting feelings of guilt or unworthiness and also making the follower feel that problems were always their own fault and not that of David or his teachings, here, we can clearly see just how a single man was able to not only indoctrinate his followers, but also keep them under his thumb. Many had said that unlike other cults, at Mount Carmel, you could leave at any time. To me though, I get why so many stayed. I mean, if you had a deep-seated fear of the outside world, and truly believed that the only way to be okay when the apocalypse comes is to follow the sky, then no, it's not really a choice to leave. You would stay out of fear. Then, a bit later in 1990, David had yet another big blow to his ego. If you recall from our last episode, David had taken the then 17-year-old Robin Bunce as one of his spiritual wives in 1986. In their time together, she had borne him a son called Sean. Robin had noticed changes in David. She explained in an interview how in the early days, when the group had still been in Palestine, he was kind and relatable. She described him as a very good guy who made people feel heard. However, things started to change when they moved back to Mount Carmel. He became distant and more egotistical. He started to refer to himself less as a prophet and more as a messiah, saying things like, quote, if the Bible is true, then I am Christ. He was also much more controlling over them. This made Robin start to question whether she really wanted to be part of all of that. The final nail in the coffin for her was when David announced that her mother was also to be one of his wives. She had already questioned the fact that he had taken sisters as his wives. She asked him about that, and when he quoted scriptures at her, She quoted Leviticus back to him. You see, Leviticus chapter 18 is God's law on forbidden sexual practices. Verse 18 states, quote, Do not take your wife's sister as one of your wives, as long as your wife is living. But David had gone too far this time. If he was indeed the all-knowing prophet, then surely he would also follow another law, which states that you should not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. She had had enough. She took her son and left the group. Her mother Janine would follow a few months later. At the time that they left, they claimed that David had already fathered around 15 children from his various wives. In our next episode, we will look at the events that led to the great tragedy at the compound. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cult which you would like further explanation on or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out Buy Design Crafts SA, and when you order, tell them I sent you for a 5% discount. I also just want to give a shout out to all of my listeners in the US. I am very grateful that you guys are listening to my humble little podcast. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening. Oh